Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 333 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Heart of Wellness, an interview with Dr. Miles Nichols. My name is Michaela Hu. And I'm Richard Johannesson. And we talk all about chronic Lyme, Dr. Nichols growing up, very similar to my story, actually, very on his childhood growing up chronically ill, how that shaped his personality, always feeling a little off, like not quite fitting in with his peers, how his father's early death really created impetus for him to start becoming his own health advocate and seeking out a diagnosis and delving deeper into his own health and how he views all of this as a gift. And he is dedicated to giving back to others with his practice, Medicine with Heart. Without further ado, we're really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, Dr. Miles Nichols. Hey, Dr. Nichols, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you for having me. We are really excited to have you. And, uh, you know, just as a point of reference for our listeners, um, we're going to have a little inner family um, uh, competition here, Dr. Nichols, because we did interview, quite frankly, one of our favorite guests ever, your wife, on an earlier podcast. And I'm hoping that you can uh, you can perform at as high a level as, uh, as the brilliant Dr. Mueller did when she was on the podcast with us. I'm looking forward to sharing what I can. All right. Well, so you will take the bait, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see if I can nudge you a little bit later on. So uh, why don't you share with us um, where you uh, currently work and what type of work you and uh, your wife are doing together? Yeah, I live in Colorado, have a clinic called Medicine with Heart. We work with Lyme, mold, gut, thyroid, autoimmune issues in the clinic, and also have a practitioner training program, the Medicine with Heart Institute that trains practitioners how to work with these complex chronic illnesses more effectively. And one of the things we really love about you guys is that so many of the Lyme practitioners are overwhelmed, right? There are just very few folks that have the skill set that you and your wife have developed. And one of the things we find frustrating is that in many cases, when folks are asking us for a referral, we can't always get them into work with a practitioner that we that we enjoy and we respect. And you folks have sort of given us a solution to that because you've trained so many practitioners that even if you are or Dr. Mueller can't uh, directly serve them, you have folks who are trained in your um your processes and, 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 and who have learned your uh, different frameworks that you can, you can refer folks to. So talk to us about how that um, has been an important part of the work that uh, you folks have been doing. Well, for me, it's really a big part is I want to help more people and I do want to have bigger impact and my time is limited for one-on-one -on -one care. So I really feel that a way that I feel called to be able to help to a greater extent than I could do in one-on-one -on -one sessions is by training practitioners because each practitioner then is able to see potentially thousands of clients or patients themselves. And that then leads to helping many more people in a broader context. I, I'm also passionate about research and development and helping to innovate treatment methods and, and processes and herbal formulations and things that are, are novel and haven't been out there before, because again, that the scalability of the impact is really important to me. I want to help more people and I feel limited in the context of just the clinic alone. So now let's build out um, Dr. Nichols. So actually, let's walk it back before you were Dr. Nichols, when you were now just young Miles Nichols. So where, where is Miles Nichols from? And talk to us a little about what your passions were during your childhood. And talk to us a little bit about 
when you started to feel the call to serve other people in the medical community? Well, my dad growing up was a medical doctor who had also a background in public health. So not only was he a doctor, he also had a master's in public health. He founded a rural health office that took mobile clinics and sent them to areas where people didn't have good access to healthcare, gave them basic checkups, basic medications. And he really was service-minded, health-minded, wanted to improve the communities. He taught at the public health department of the medical school in Arizona, where I grew up, Tucson, Arizona. And he then became a state legislator and then a state senator. And he was working to pass policies. One policy he wanted to pass he couldn't was called the Healthy Arizona Initiative. That he had to get as an initiative because he couldn't get it passed in the House or the Senate. So the initiative, I remember going as a kid door to door, knocking on people's door, asking them to sign a petition as a young child for this Healthy Arizona Initiative. So health was always a part of the family dynamic. It was always a, a discussed and especially the policies around health and public health and how that could help people, especially underprivileged populations. And yet I was struggling as a, a child. I had strange things. I had asthma, I had eczema, I had things that allergies and things that my siblings didn't have. And that was strange. And 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 there was some things there were some things that started to happen for me. I got recurrent strep throats and and they just were this weird strain and they kept coming and something was a little different in my health picture as a young child. My dad was trying to figure that out. I had a couple of eye surgeries from when I was very young and my dad was trying to figure that out to an extent, but didn't really have the tools available in his conventional medical training, even though it was top notch, even though it was Stanford Medical School and, and, and Harvard Public Health, he, he didn't have the tools to understand why what was going on was going on for me. The only things that were available were a steroid inhalator to try to manage the symptom of the asthma. And I just had to avoid the things that I was allergic to and have an EpiPen in case something happened. And, and, and then I really, it took a long time, but I was, I felt like, like, okay, finally I, I was managing, I was functional enough for a while, but uh, at one point it just became a little too much and I really didn't feel like I could function all that well. So you have this Ivy League educated dad, a doctor, a, a, a public health official, a, an elected official, and he just can't figure out what's going on with one of the people who he loves the most in the world. So talk to us about why you think he didn't have an adequate either background or training to figure out what was going on with young Miles. Well, I think that it took me a long time to figure that out. And it took many, many, many practitioners to try to figure that out. So it is just challenging. And the education that, that my father was given was very good at acute illness. I mean, 100 years ago, we had the top killers as tuberculosis and typhoid and pneumonia. These things aren't such a big deal today. And I appreciate medicine for that. And I appreciate that you can go get an antibiotic for a life-threatening infection. And I think that's where his training and 
medicine excels in dealing with the symptoms and dealing with acute illness, but chronic illness is another animal. And so he was doing his best to help, but the tools were mainly managing symptoms kinds of tools. And that's just so common because there's this ability to reverse or eliminate the cause of an acute illness, like an infection very quickly. If it's a certain kind of infection, it doesn't become chronic, but there's not the ability to deal so much with chronic systemic infections, with autoimmune issues, which I discovered later that was a part of my health picture with subclinical issues that aren't easily diagnosable. So I think there's just a lack of education and that's a big part of it. And there, I think he had good education, some of the top education that was available in acute intervention and surgical interventions and life-saving medications and medications to manage symptoms and public health policies to help prevent issues to an extent, but not how to deal with the complexities of chronic illness, which according to the Centers for Disease Control today, it's it's six in 10 Americans that have at least one chronic disease. That's a majority of American adults, US adults that have at least one chronic disease, four in 10 that have two or more chronic diseases. It's been on the rise. Clearly the approaches that are mainstream in, in, in medicine, even the top-notch approaches aren't, aren't putting a dent in the chronic disease epidemic. It's so interesting that you mentioned that you grew up feeling ill because I too, I'm Michaela. I was on episode 318. I'm the co-host. Rich is not alone in this podcast. I am um, also co-hosting today as a guest, but um, me with my personal story with my chronic illnesses, mold and Lyme and the whole package deal. I, as long as I could remember I always felt ill. I had the eczema. I had brain fog, gut issues. It sounds like it's a very similar story with yourself as well. Now with me, since as long as I can remember, I felt like that growing up like that, you just don't know any other life outside of that. So you kind of accept it as your normal. Now, is that kind of the narrative that you told yourself as well? Yeah, I didn't really question it all that much. It, it just my weird patches on my elbows and things that I had to avoid and the medications I had to, to, to carry around in case something happened, the, the antibiotics that I had to take for the recurring infections just didn't have, a, it, was, it didn't seem abnormal because I didn't know anything different. I just accepted it as, oh, this is just part of growing up, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. I was just curious because that's exactly the same story I told myself. And were you vocal about it with your parents or was it something that you kind of kept to yourself? No, I was absolutely vocal about it, although I think I had a high tolerance for pain. <laughs> so there were a lot of things that I just didn't make a big deal out of that in retrospect, when I look back, I realized they were issues. Again, I think it's this normalization. I thought, oh, you know, this is just maybe other people have trouble breathing, maybe other, and I, severe cat allergy, and I would be at other people's houses with cats. I would be not breathing well enough to even sleep through the night. And I would push through and I, I would talk about it a little bit, but I, not enough, I don't think to help understand. And, and it's part of it does, boil back to me not 
maybe telling my father how significant it was. I, I don't know that he understood how significant the issues were for me at that time. Mm-hmm. Rich, uh, Rich, I think you're on mute. <laughs> Banana. Okay, that's our that's our um, that's our <laughs> our editing word. So, folks, let's talk about um, the impact that having childhood illnesses has on mindset and your beliefs. Because I, I want to build that out to talk about how that needed to change during your adult life when you were healing. So, Doctor Nick, let's first talk about you. What, what were the beliefs that were developing and, and how did that impact, uh, you know, your neurological development and your neurological processes when you were always sick and you sort of came to this, this, um, this feeling as, uh, or this understanding as Michaela had so beautifully pointed out um, about your wellness or lack of wellness? Well, so things shifted for me pretty dramatically in that front when I was about 15. I I had this sense before then that I really had this very significant and and positive view. I didn't really, I I came across to people very happy, very uh, just pleasant and polite and playful. And if I was dealing with pain or other issues, I, I would often just keep it to myself. And I would internally feel like there was something happening that I didn't know, didn't understand, couldn't really, I, it seemed like people around me weren't having it, but I, I, I didn't have a sense for how best to grapple with or deal with that internally. When when I was 15, I was babysitting for a, a, a friend of, of my sister, uh, had a friend whose daughter I was babysitting for, and I got a call, the, the phone rang, one of those old style kind of cream colored, big, reminded me of grandma's house, kind of uh, spiral like cord phone, picked that up. And it's someone from my family's church. And she says that something's happened. Your father's in the hospital. You're going to have to leave immediately. And so in that moment, I was in shock. I, I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't really told what was going on, but I was frozen inside. I couldn't ask what was going on either. I just sort of froze inside. And, I, and then someone came and they took over. I went home and, and it, little by little, it became clear to me that something bigger had happened than I was being told. And, and I was with a, a friend of mine and her, his mom was talking in ways that sounded significant, like maybe something bigger had happened than I was aware of. Uh, and I thought about asking about it, but I, I also thought this is kind of interesting, this experience of not knowing. And I wanted to ride that experience for a while. Um, and so it took a while because the, I was in Tucson and my father had been in Phoenix and that's a couple hours away and there had to be transportation arrangements. And eventually I was able to get transported and then went to the hospital and then walked into the room and where his body was. And he had died suddenly and unexpectedly from a heart attack, no pre-warning, no known former issue that was, that we were suspecting could have this happen. It was complete shock. And in that moment, I had an experience that I would say was spiritual in nature. I, I felt uh, 
more connected with the essence of who my father was than ever before. And I, it's very hard to explain. It's very hard to talk about, but I felt peace in a way um, in that moment. And I felt a sense of connectedness with something that I couldn't explain or understand both my health picture and this experience with having not really an ability to understand what was happening and everyone else around me had a very different response and everyone else was breaking down and I was feeling so different internally. And I was trying to conform with the way other people were feeling. I was thinking maybe I'm doing it wrong. I remember one night I was trying to force myself to cry about it, even though my inner experience didn't match what was happening with other people. I remember walking outside, having this uh, owl would come into the tree at my mom's house and I would feel as if I was communing with the spirit of my father or the essence or something through that animal. And again, I didn't have any, there was no belief structure. There was no, nothing that could tell me what was happening at this moment in time, the background, the upbringing, the beliefs that I had were, I don't, I have no idea what's happening. And, and, and that was a problem for me internally. I had to, at that moment, I felt like I need to investigate further my inner terrain and what is happening here, both on the health side and on the grief process and on the, the dealing with my father's death. It, it took me to a place internally where I felt like I had to learn the, 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 the information, the attitudes and the beliefs that I had were insufficient to explain what was going on. So I very quickly became interested in and found meditation and yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong and began to explore Buddhist philosophy and, and many things that, that, that looked at a different perspective on the essence of a person after the physical body leaves and that look at some aspects of, I also, I, I just, I had to understand why my father did pass on when he passed on. He was 64. He was at the pinnacle of his career. He was helping so many people. And I was a little bit angry that, 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 that had, that he, he, that it had happened. It had happened without warning. He hadn't, we, we hadn't, there was nothing that, that we could do that I could do. I wanted to do something. I wanted to help. I wanted to, to, to be able to see that coming and be able to course correct. And that became a fire in my heart that later, later really made me want to understand preventive predictive medicine, made me want to understand complex chronic illness, made me want to understand what might've been going on for him that he didn't know that ended in this tragedy. And I didn't want to have tragedy for someday my own family or for other people's families. And I really started to have this fire in my heart that I need to figure out how to help people in a way that isn't explained by the way that my father was trained, that isn't explained by even the people around me at the time. And I had to figure out that for myself. And it took me, that's where I became focused on, this is a journey for myself that I need to figure out. And I, and, and I, I can't rely exclusively on other people to tell me what to do or how to go about that journey. So Dr. Nichols, let's bookmark this portion of the conversation for a second, because I do want to come back to it. I think it's going to be a really important um, part of some of the questions I want to ask you about your dad's training and, and the acute versus chronic illness. 
But let's talk about your 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 again your mindset and your beliefs leading up to when you turned fifteen, because it sounds like you had a transformational moment there, um, both emotionally and spiritually. But I want to talk to you about what it was like to be the sick kid and what it was that you believed about illness and wellness and whether or not that were serving you or not serving you and whether you needed to change that before you could go on your healing journey. So let's let's talk about your pre-15 year old mindset first. Yeah, it really was a mindset of accepting what is passively in a resignation kind of way. I didn't really, I, I would just accept what people told me. I'd go to the doctor, they say, oh, take this inhalator if you're getting an asthma attack and carry it with you. And if you get sick with strep throat, come in and take these antibiotics. And that's just what I knew. I just passively accepted. I was a, a, in a sense, internally, my belief was something around that, that, you know, I, and I, I think I trusted that the best medical information was available to me, given my father's history and that, that this was the best outcome possible. And I thought like, but Dr. Nichols, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I do want to focus on another piece of this. I don't, I'm not asking you what your mindset was regarding the treatment you were receiving, because we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But what did you believe about yourself? Did you believe that you were the sick kid? Did you believe that you have, did you have this loop in your head that led you to believe that you were just sickly and that's just the way it was and that's the way it was going to be? Yeah. And that's what I'm getting to. And I'm saying passive resignation. Like I felt like, oh, this is just what I, this is. I'm just this, this way. And I just have to deal with this. And I'm, I felt different, different than other kids. And I just had to deal with that and, and not think about it much, try not to think about it much. And late, later that once it started to get in the way of my, my day-to-day -day life later, I, I, it became a bigger issue internally. And, and then I really got down on myself in a, in a different way. At this point in my life, pre being 15, I think I, I didn't think a ton about it, but I did feel different and that I had to deal with, there was no options for me. So Michaela, why don't you help build this out for us as well? I mean, we did spend a lot of time on episode 318 of, of our podcast where we interviewed you, but talk to us about what your belief system was based on being the sick kid and being ill your entire life. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I felt chronically ill, but as I mentioned, it was just something that I had accepted as my normal. I thought, well, I guess I do have like these rashes that at the time we thought was eczema and the end it ended up being Babesia, which was a co-infection of Lyme, but I would get all these random things, like not just the typical flu or cold, but I'd get the dizzy spells or weird bloating or constipation, brain fog, fatigue, things that you just don't deal with when you're four years old, generally. And I had just given myself this story, told myself, well, this is just like the way it is for me. This is my normal so this is just how it's going to be. This is what I have to accept because I had nothing to compare it to. So how was I supposed to know that it's not normal to feel this way? But then when I got to be school age, I had a lot of difficulty concentrating, had a lot of difficulty following simple instructions. It was very hard for me to focus. But at the same time, 
I was very studious. So I was a straight A student. I was not one of these kids that just like couldn't pull it together for school. I would pull all these different gymnastics in, in my head to try to keep up with my peers. And the story I told myself at that point was, well, I'm I'm very creative, which was true. I was a very creative individual. So I thought, well, a lot of creative people are out of the box thinkers. They, they don't follow the norm, the mainstream. So that's just me. So I would just continually build upon the story of this is why my brain works and my body works the way it does. And maybe partly this is the way I was born. I, I will never know, or maybe Lyme amplified it. And it's just one of these things I, I won't know for sure if that is my true personality or if it was triggered by my chronic illness or a combination of both. So now, Dr. Nichols, let's talk about the next step, right? So you had this belief, you both had this belief, but I'd like you first, Dr. Nichols, to talk to me about your, the, how your brain was working now that you believe that you were the sick kid, meaning what information were you now receiving from the world? And was that confirming that you were the sick kid? And do you believe that interfered with your ability now pre-15 to, to find a path towards wellness? Yeah, I certainly had some times that I can remember where I was treated differently, where I felt like I families were knew that I had allergies and were 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 treating me in a way of oh we have to be careful and uh, okay you're allergic to this and this and 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 some uh, getting teased and and other things that you know what what is that on your arm what is that you know and 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 it it definitely made me feel and I had a similar thing actually in to to Michaela and that I did feel very different in a way that I didn't know anything other than that but that I would also think very differently than people. And I also didn't know if that relates to the illness or if that is how I began. I mean, I, I was very odd in the first day of first grade. I, I said, I want to wear a bathrobe to school. And my parents said, okay, <laughs> they, they were okay with me expressing myself in the way I wanted, but of course the other kids weren't uh, so okay with that. And I got very teased. And then in first grade, I, I broke four bones in my foot and I got a cast and I decided that I really like hot pink and I got a hot pink cast, but apparently a boy isn't supposed to get a hot pink cast at that time. And so again, it was like, I'm, wait, am I doing it wrong or, or, or is it right? And, and it was confusing. I was confused both about the fact that that I was treated a little bit differently in the, the health stuff that people had to be careful and they thought it was weird and they thought I was strange, but then also that, that my personal preferences, I wanted to wear weird things. I wanted to, to, to do things that then I got teased about. And I felt like I was really an outcast in a lot of ways for a long time and had to really figure out socially how to adapt and how to get through not only school, but also the social dynamics and at play there. So Michaela, one of the things that we've learned through some of our work with past guests is that the way the brain works, because it cannot process all the sensory information that's available to us through our senses, is that our brain screens a lot of the data that is available to us. And the screening process is through the reticular activation system, which is going to now screen what it is that we're going to see and what it is that we're not going to see. 
And our beliefs are what place the reticular activation system into a position where it's screening what it is that we're receiving, what it is that we're not receiving. So with that background, Michaela, do you think because you didn't know anything other than being sick and because you had this belief that you know, that sickness was a part of who you were, that the information that was being screened out from you prevented you from having any other belief and you just kept getting more and more confirmation that you were unwell and that continued you down the path towards unwellness? I think for sure, because I, like similar to Dr. Nichols, I I was always a little off and I don't mean it in like a special ed type of way. I always thought that I was special. Like I just felt like I didn't quite fit in with my peers. For instance, one time someone asked me, how was my day? And in my mind, I truly thought like day, like what, what day, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, like in my head, I was thinking, huh, what a, what a weird question. Like what, what day are they referring to? And then later on, I thought to myself, oh, no wonder, of course they mean today. Like how was your day? The day they're referring to was the day that we are in. So it was like little things like that, like always and even um, down to present day, I, I still have episodes like that, that would um, constantly remind me that my brain does not operate like the average person's. So it was constant confirmation for me that there's something that is just like slightly off. So let's now talk a little bit about what we bookmarked, Dr. Nichols, which is this uh, system your dad was trained in. Um, and the limits that it placed on his ability to help you to identify what was going on with you, right? So, you know, we have a lot of people on our social media and on our podcast, and quite frankly, I'm probably guilty of this as well, uh, where we're, you know, we're doctor bashing on a pretty regular basis, right? Doctors suck, you know, they invalidate us. They are people that, you know, we can't trust, you know, they're a part of the you know, the industrial medical complex, and we go off on doctors all the time. And I have to tell you that I, I think I may be maturing in my perspective on that, because I don't think it's that doctors suck. And I'm not even sure that their training sucks. I think what really sucks is that we have developed a system that only treats acute illness. And that's what your dad was trained in. That's what we define as, um, as uh, generally accepted medical practices. And we place these constraints on these people who I think are trained well enough to treat chronic illnesses, but unfortunately not permitted to because of the limitations that the education departments and the insurance companies place on people like your dad. So let's talk about that so that people who are listening to this podcast understand what the limit, what the real limitations are when they're walking into their doctor's office. And that is that it's a system that's just designed to treat acute illness even if the doctor has the desire and the capacity to treat a chronic illness. Yeah, it, the some of the stats shock me. The really right now, the landscape is that insurance coverage and the economics for insurance coverage to work out to be able to pay doctors and to manage clinics mean the doctors do have to see 
between six to eight people per hour in order to make that make sense. And doctors often want to spend more time, but if they try to only see two people or three people an hour, they're pulled into a back room and they're said, we're not meeting our quotas that we need. And you need to either see more people or we're going to have to let you go. It kind of happens that way, unfortunately, where people want to spend more time and dive deeper and then they're limited. The way insurance billing works has to do with a diagnostic code and there being a particular issue. So sometimes if you want, if you have headaches and you have fatigue, you have to book two different visits because there's only one thing discussed, even though we know those are connected both to similar underlying root causes like Lyme disease, of course, can contribute to both of those issues. There's not this recognition that it's connected. And then there's the segmentation into specialists. And these specialties are also limited in the sense that they're very, very good at understanding everything about the digestive tract as a gastroenterologist, but they're limited in that they're, they're not to do things with neurologic issues, even though we know the gut-brain connection is so strong. In fact, I have a, a, a summit that's going to come out on, on microbes and mental health and how Lyme infection and other microbial imbalances in the gut connect with mental health issues. And yet neurologists and psychiatrists and psychologists and gastroenterologists aren't really talking to each other, aren't really seeing the bigger picture. There's this sense of a, an incredible amount of detailed orientation to being able to understand a, a in great detail, a, a, a narrow perspective, which is good to be able to do when it does come to acute illness, when it comes to surgical interventions, we can pinpoint exactly the thing to take out to help the body to be able to manage its function a little better. And that's great. But drugs and, and, and surgeries are really the, the main interventions that tend to get covered under insurance. So it's sort of like, okay, as a doctor, I'm being pressured, if I'm under the insurance model, I'm being pressured to see between six to eight people per hour. And I'm being pressured to limit my treatment options to drugs or surgery. And I'm being pressured to limit my diagnostic tools to those which insurance considers good and valid and is willing to cover and pay for. And I have a lot of notes to take to justify all of that to a third party who's not even in the room so that I really am limited to a great extent in what I can do as a doctor within the insurance-based model. And that really, and the stats are, are, are a little bit insane when it comes to, they did a study looking at how long can a patient talk before they're interrupted by their doctor? There were two studies, one found 11 seconds and one found 18 seconds. And that's not because a doctor doesn't care and doesn't want to listen. It's because they have a checklist this big of what they need to do in this much time. And it's like, okay, just tell me, tell me the issue. Tell me the meds you've taken before. Like, I got to get a diagnosis. I got to get a, I got to get something in here and I got to get a lab in here. I got to, and I have all these treat, treatments. I it was recently, my mom is struggling right now with a, a cancer diagnosis. And I was with her at a doctor appointment and I was asking the doctor, oh, have you researched this? And I'm kind of interested in this blood marker as a tracking marker. And he said, he said, Miles, I, I have more than, I have over 900 patients. I'm overseeing uh, several other practitioners. I have all this paperwork I have to do. I am sorry, I do not have time to keep up on the literature. And 
And I said, yeah, I get it. I get it. I understand. Like you're, you're, you really care and yet your hands are tied. So you've identified two issues that we should talk about. And I'd like to get Michaela's input on this, but essentially what our contact with doctors has become is a speed dating relationship, right? We have a very limited amount of time to get to know one another and decide whether or not we're going to enter into a long-term relationship. So it's speed dating at best. Uh, and then, of course, you also talked about the segmentation where we develop so many specialties and subspecialties and sub-subspecialties that no one's looking at the entire person, even though they're only spending 10 minutes with you, right? So, Michaela, one of the things that we've observed on this podcast uh, from almost every one of our guests, um, and, and this is a question that Matt Sabatello regularly asks our guests is, well, what was the difference when you went to meet with a Lyme literate medical doctor, right? And you and I had a bit of a conversation about that on episode 318. And one of the first things that we hear from our guest when asked about the difference between treating with a traditional allopathic doctor and a Lyme literate doctor is that the Lyme literate doctor spent two hours or three hours assessing me. And the Lyme literate doctor really listened to me. And the Lyme literate doctor really spent a lot of time with me, right? That, that, that seems to be one of the first things that we hear. Was that your experience, Michaela, when you finally went to a Lyme literate uh, doctor? And do you think that really is at the heart of the challenge that we have with doctors really sucking when it's time for them to treat somebody with a chronic illness? Yeah, that was my experience. Definitely. It was a complete 180 from everything that I had experienced in the past with doctors. I, similar to a lot of other people who battle chronic illness, saw all the doctors under the sun that was covered by my insurance just to check everyone off the list there. And before I dished out the Boku bucks for a Lyme literate medical doctor who didn't take insurance, but it was just like a breath of fresh air. I went to see my doctor, the doctor I saw was Dr. Erica Lehman in Beverly Hills, and she just spent so much time with me. And it was just, it felt more like a friendship than just a transactional, okay, here I am, like, what are your symptoms? Okay, here's like your prescription, off you go, like next. So it was dramatically different. And I think that it's just a testament to the, the flaw that as Dr. Nichols brought out. It, it's not necessarily the doctor's fault, the Western med, um, medicine doctors. It's pretty much the entire infrastructure of our medical system is flawed. And it's just, it's not one specific break. I think it's just a matter of, there are so many um, broken parts that it needs to be repaired. It's just such a, a flawed system. So let's talk about that because I, I think there are two pieces, Dr. Nichols, that I'd like you to address with, uh, with us on this, on this really important point because folks have to learn how to work within the system and get the most they can out of the system. But I think we, in many cases, just step out of the system altogether. And, and when we step out of the system altogether, that creates another set of problems that I want to address with you as a doctor. But let, let's 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 un, unravel this one piece at a time. So one of the things that we've, we've had the benefit of doing since we've interviewed uh, 333 of you um, is uh, we've interviewed people from foreign countries, right? And we've had people in America say, well, the biggest problem that we have is we do not have, we, we do not have a system where the government is 
you know, controlling uh, medical care. We don't have a socialized medical system. Well, as it turns out, we've interviewed many people from countries that are working within a socialized medical system from the UK, from Europe, and from Canada. And, you know, and the, and from what I understand, the, you know, the best system, Israel. We interviewed someone from Israel. And guess what happens in every one of the countries that have a socialized medical system? The same problem we have here. Because it's built around an acute care system, it sucks. And because it's built around an acute care system, the doctors have even less flexibility than the doctors have here in the US. And because of that, they have to step out of the system as well, right? So really what we have with, with, um, with people who have chronic illness, and specifically, let's focus on Lyme disease as the cure for, uh, as the cause for, um, for uh, chronic conditions, we have people stepping out of the system because the acute care system is not designed to treat this issue. And it doesn't matter whether the insurance is a private insurance system or it's a public insurance system. It doesn't matter whether we have private practitioners or we have public practitioners. The outcome is the same because the system in either place is designed to treat acute care. And as a result of that, when you have a chronic illness, you have to step out. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and the, the thing is, is that there are great diagnostics, there are great labs available, but even the great lab testing for Lyme falls outside of the conventional insurance coverage. The insurance coverage will cover the basic, some, some very basic labs that miss so much Lyme, and the specialty labs that'll do a better job tend not to get good coverage or sometimes any coverage on Lyme disease. So even if a doctor in the insurance model wanted to and was able to have the education to know what to order and to know how to begin to treat Lyme disease, the, the lack of the ability, the amount of time to understand the backstory, the history, everything involved. And when I do sit down with a patient and, and go over the backstory, I, I find out so many things about what might be the progression of how this has happened and 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 what other issues it's it's usually not just one thing lime ends up being seven or eight things that we need to treat together and that's complex and so difficult to do so even if there were to be the ability to utilize some of the most advanced diagnostics and treatments that would still only shave a small amount off and so many people need a comprehensive approach. And, and that does unfortunately have them stepping outside of the system. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for the system to maybe start to order a little bit of the conventional lab work. Okay, let's get covered what we can. Like, let's get covered what we can and let's use that information as best we can. Absolutely. And if we can get some coverage there, great. And we probably also will need for many people to go outside of, I certainly did myself. Okay, so let's let's pause there for a second because you, you've gotten to the point that I, I, I did want to discuss with you, which is, all right, so we understand if we have a chronic illness, we have to step outside of the system, but we have to husband our resources as best we can. We have to have a relationship with a practitioner. And one of the things that really scares me with a lot of the people that I'm interviewing is they step entirely out of the system. Now they're treating themselves. Now they have no relationship with a practitioner. Now they're doing all kinds of crazy things and, and they also become more vulnerable to snake oil salesmen that put them in a position where their illness is being, they're being taken advantage of, they're wasting money that could be 
utilized in a better way. And they're unfortunately just getting sicker and sicker. So let's focus on that piece of it, stepping out and how far we step out and how do we use the conventional system to at least give us some information that could be helpful to us in our healing journey. Yeah, I mean, there are diagnostics that are fantastic, even though Lyme diagnostics are tricky. There are tracking markers that are basic things. People can get an idea of their basic immune function. Any, any primary care physician will order a CBC, you know, and look at the white blood cell count and uh, a CMP and look at liver function and, and kidney function and a, a TSH to look at basic thyroid function of vitamin D to look at that. And that's going to relate to immune function as well. And, and some primary cares, if you ask, they'll, they'll add a, uh, uh, I mean, it's through a conventional lab, but they'll add a a, a Lyme blot panel, maybe. Yeah, or so they, you, I mean, you get you can get the the tick-borne the the tick-borne uh, panel, and yeah. So they so so there are there are some tools that a traditional practitioner can offer to you, even if they're not Lyme literate, that you can use to track your health, to use track to track your progress, and to give you some input into some of the traditional. Um, you know, ex, uh, you know, accepted frameworks to help you learn more about how you can you can move forward with um, with uh, with moving towards wellness. Yeah, and I think complementary is a much better term than alternative. I, I I really do feel that there's. I mean, we a hundred years ago we were dealing with typhoid and tuberculosis and pneumonia as big killers, and we're not today. And if you need a surgery to remove your gallbladder, it's a good thing that you have it. If you have your pen, appendix bursting inside you, like we need this stuff and we, you don't, you want to have a relationship and you want to be able to address these things and you want to be able to rule things out. I tell people, look, like go to the neurologist, rule out the big stuff, please. Like I don't want to, I don't want to treat you for Lyme when you actually, there is a tumor in your brain that needs to be removed. Like we need that information, please. Like do, and don't, don't let those people tell you what to do and dictate your care, like take responsibility and ownership for your care. But please, if, if there's some, if there are some things that are, that are legitimately uh, diagnostics are great in conventional medicine, the diagnostics are really good and they're limited from the insurance perspective of what they're willing to pay for, but there can be some great information. And when I have the information that we do have some structural abnormality, then as a, a Lyme literate doctor, I can put that into context and I can say, look, there are, you know, if we're looking at back pain and neck pain, we know Lyme can cause neck pain, but if you also have some structural things there, they may be contributing, but they may not be the full picture. So don't let that be the full picture, but it's good to understand that and what we're doing together and that complements each other. So Michaela, as a patient, can you talk to us about what kinds of things you think you would like to recommend to others so they can get the most out of the conventional system and, and save as much money as they possibly can so that they have that money available to them when they want to use a complementary system. I really love that term, by the way, Dr. Nichols, a complementary system so that uh, they can get a better outcome. I think that it is a balancing act between the Western and Eastern medicine. You can't just be having all the herbs under the sun from like an Eastern medicine perspective and it what's the case since we're talking Lyme and not treat Lyme with any pharmaceuticals in most cases, like we live in a toxic world. We can't um, survive 
in most cases, just on an herbal protocol, you have to balance it out with different prescriptions. And that's where the Western medicine comes into play. Also, blood work is very important. You don't want to neglect that. That's something that is most times covered by insurance, just the general, the vitamin D, the white red blood cell count, liver markers, uh, the thyroid is very important to check up on. So it is one of these, everything in moderation. You don't want to go too off the deep end in any um, form of medicine. So I think just looking at everything holistically and balancing it out in a moderate way is a really balanced approach. And it's something that's sustainable for those who with chronic illnesses. So Dr. Nichols, let's now talk about chronic illness. And how, how do we define a chronic illness as opposed to an acute illness? So chronic illness is going to be something that is through a longer period of time. So it's not going to be you got a flu and you're sick for three days. That would be an acute illness or you have an infection that's putting you out like pneumonia and it's, and some people will die from pneumonia, but these days there are good treatments available to, to, to get rid of that. And maybe it's a few days and you are feeling better or a week or two weeks and you're feeling better. So these kinds of things that are a few days to a couple of weeks, if you get food poisoning and you're really in a bad way, vomiting, that's usually acute. It's usually going to resolve in a few days if you take care of yourself. So anything that's in that couple week time frame where it's a short term thing would be considered acute illness. Anything that's ongoing for months, years, this is going to be a chronic illness. And chronic illnesses are often then designated as in the conventional medical model, something to manage symptoms. Often it is passively resigned to that if you have an autoimmune disease, then that's for life and we can manage the symptoms of it, but we can't, you know, reverse it or cure it. And, and many, so many of these chronic diseases wind up becoming this thing to manage for the rest of a person's life. So now let's focus on chronic Lyme disease. Um, do you believe that chronic Lyme disease is a, a, a disease of immune dysfunction, right? The, do you believe that the microbes have now overwhelm the immune system's capacity to manage the microbes. And that's why um, people are chronically ill from Lyme disease. It's incredible how many infections are present for people who seem quite healthy. And that's because the immune system is in a dynamic balance with infection. And when the immune system does become dysregulated, that is a time when chronic infection can cause more severe symptomatology. And I do feel that Lyme, the immune function part of Lyme is a significant part. It's not the only part, but it is one of the most significant parts. And when I see someone who's come with Lyme and they've been treated by someone who's only addressing the killing of the infection itself and is not addressing the immune dysregulation, I get really worried actually, because the immune function is so important. Antibiotics never, even in acute infection, antibiotics never fully take care of an infection. They knock it down enough that your immune system can take over and resolve the issue. So the immune function, people don't often realize this. It's the immune system has to do, it has to, has to finish the job no matter what. It has to win the right. It's your immune system that's winning the war. So the only thing you're doing when you take antibiotics or any other form of 
of, um, of intervention that is designed to kill the microbes, you're only trying to help the immune system win the war. And if and if the if the immune system is not in a position where it can win the war, you're not going to get any better. Which is why we start to see these cycles, right? I mean, one of the things we learned when we um, we interviewed one of the one of the folks from uh, DNA Connections, for example, um, what what we were told was that uh, they'll they'll test um, the Lyme will be killed, the Lyme bacteria will be killed. But then something else will crop up. And, you know, and, and, and Matt Sabatello, my co-host, always talks about it as being this whack-a-mole. Well, the reason it's whack-a-mole is because we're just killing. What's going to happen is something else is going to crop up because the immune system can't manage that microbe. And then when you kill that one, something else crops up, right? Because we're not focusing on the immune dysfunction and because we're not focusing on the immune dysfunction. In fact, making that the center of our, our, um, our um, wellness um effort when we're at the when we're at the uh, assist phase of of, of treatment uh, we're never going to get better absolutely and I think that there are other elements too and there are elements that are obvious if you have toxins accumulated in tissues if you have huge amounts of metals in your body these are all inflammatory causes that are going to further dysregulate the immune function so when we say immune regulation is at the center then we have to ask why is the immune system dysregulated and then it goes branches off into all these different areas well 70 percent plus of the immune cells are in the gut. So the immune proteins in the gut. So now we need to look at the gut and then we have toxin accumulation, creating chronic inflammation, leading to further immune dysregulation. We have to go there. And now we have stress and other nervous system and HPA access dysregulation contributing to nervous system, to immune system dysregulation. So we have to look at the limbic system and the vagus system and brain retraining. And so it takes us a lot of directions very quickly, but it is at the hub. It's, it's in the center of it. Right. So, so, it, so it, there are a number of different reasons why we are vulnerable to suffering from chronic illness when we have uh, Lyme disease. But it really is all about the immune system, right? There may be other reasons why the immune system is being dysregulated, and you gave a few a few examples, whether it be mold or whether it be heavy metals or whether it be you know some other reasons why our system is being dysregulated. You know, we're stuck in fight or flight, and we have this HPA uh, access issue. I mean, there's so many different pieces to that, right? Uh, where where adrenal misfunction is uh, dysfunction is going to play play a role in, in this as well. So so, but it really at the hub, I like your word. It's making sure that we put ourselves in a position where our defense system, our immune system is able to function properly. And that has to be the focus if we're going to be successful in managing this disease. Or do you disagree? I I agree. And I I would put a consciousness corollary to it. People often don't do this, but but the physiological expressions, the body expressions and the psychological dimension isn't so separate as I think people think of it in this culture. It's not a mind and a body. It is a mind body process that co-arises. The, the physiologic and psychologic dimensions are intimately and inseparably connected. And there's this What is the immune system? If we think of the consciousness corollary, well, this is in the body. This is the thing that recognizes self and not self and that takes self and preserves it and takes not self and pushes it away. And it's, it's boundaries. It's the ability to adapt and be flexible to 
who I am and who I could become, but who I, it, it clearly is not me. And it's better to make sure that that is not taken in and fostered and given resources. And, and we see this big complex physiologically with infections becoming significant and the other side of self-attack autoimmunity where the immune system is trying to attack an infection. We know, for example, that Lyme protein, there's a section of Lyme protein in research that looks a lot like thyroid protein. This is part of how I came to realize that I had Lyme was a, it started with a thyroid problem, but there's a match between the genetics and the immune system says, oh, Lyme, this is a threat. And it starts to attack that inadvertently it's attacking thyroid tissue or it's attacking dopamine receptors in the brain or tubulin or lysoganglia. So these brain structures, and we're starting to get anxiety and depression and OCD and eating disorders and all this stuff happening. Well, on the consciousness side, I, I often, it, it's important to know who are you and who are you not? And are you clear on that? And on the physiological side, can the immune system be clear on what is self tissue and what is non self and what are we pushing away and what are we giving resource and, and, and actually fostering in ourselves. So Michaela, give us your reaction to um, what I think Dr. Nichols is saying is that, you know, we, at least in our culture, we, we try to distinguish through our descriptive language, the body from the mind from the spirit, right? And what Dr. Nichols is saying is this is all one thing. We're not really a, a physical being, an emotional being, and a spiritual being. We're one thing, but because we have these issues with construct and with language, we're describing it separately. And therefore, we have some, we have some real difficulties with, with overcoming the essence of chronic disease because of our constructs and our language. Definitely. I completely agree everything is interconnected and it's not only a healing journey physically it's mentally it's spiritually you really have to target all of those areas in order to fully recover i believe that if people don't work on their limbic system for instance they're just working on taking their supplements they're doing all their detox they're like very studious with all that they, yes, they will heal to a degree, but you still have to address the mind. And that's a huge portion of healing. And the mind is so powerful. And there's a lot of trauma that we accumulate over the course of our lives. No matter who you are, doesn't matter if you've had this extremely traumatic event or if you've just been living life just the everyday stress as, of as life. a sick kid living life as a sick kid uh, exactly not having the Olympic system right that that's very traumatic too and if you don't address that the body downloads that and it stores that and it gets stored into your subconscious and then all of a sudden it's part of you and it it could be um part of what is preventing you from fully recovering so you really have to target all areas and chip away at the block from all angles. So now let's talk about let's Dr. Nichols, let's come back to your experience when you're 15, your dad passes away and you and you have this spiritual enlightenment. How did that change the way you were dealing with your symptomology? And how did that ultimately get you to a place where you were able to get a diagnosis for Lyme disease? a great segue from where we were just talking because that consciousness piece became more prominent for me. I realized how much that played a role. I didn't 
analyze. I didn't look at my belief structures and attitudes, and I didn't look at the subtle traumas that had occurred that I didn't think about. And I didn't realize that my limbic system was dysregulated, but seeing my dad die suddenly and unexpectedly did give me some real interest in, I need to understand stress. I need to understand the mind. I need to understand a lot about how I relate to my experience. And, and, and as I started to work with meditation practices, yoga, Qigong, Tai Chi, as I began to explore internally in my heart sense, what's my purpose? Where am I going? What am I doing? As I started to do practices that were intended to relax and intended to, to do less and intended to be more and to tune into who I am and where my internal world is at. I, uh, many things started to go away. I, I didn't need an inhaler anymore. I didn't need uh, certain aspects. My skin cleared up. There were some other things that didn't resolve though. I, 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 I was dealing with such severe chronic fatigue by the time I was in my young twenties, I really was struggling to get through school. And that just and we can go deeper into that in a moment, but the, the, the sense is that, that I was able to get, and just like Michaela was saying, like, we can work on the body and only get so far. We can also work on the mind and only get so far. It's both. And it's really a both and approach that, that I find is, is so helpful for myself and for patients in the clinic. And so for me, I, I, I came to a place and I, I came to a realization that, that the, what's happening physically to me, I, instead of a passive resignation, where before I had just said, oh, this is normal. This is the, just who I am. This is just part of me. I had, I, had, I had identified with it and accepted it, passively resigned to it. It changed. It changed to a different kind of acceptance, an acceptance and an embrace that what is, is as it is. And I'm not going to try to resist it or push it away. I became deeply at peace and content with what is, as it is. And yet I also want to be proactive and do things. To, to, I, I can imagine and envision a better future. And what I realized is that it's not that I, I can think my way out of feeling tired or I can think my way out of Lyme disease or I can think my way out of this thing. It's more that the fatigue in my body, what I came to or the migraine headaches that I was getting or the other aspects of what I was dealing with, it, it used to be the migraines would get so bad that I would, I would vomit and I'd have to be in a dark room and it was, I'd, I'd sleep for 16 hours sometimes. And it was that bad. And, and I recognized in this phase of my life, I recognized at some point that there was a lot of inner resisting what was. And when I tried to say, oh, I know I can, I can deal with this. I'm going to do all these practices or I'm going to take all these supplements. Or I'm going to do all this stuff. And I'm going to like overcome this from that attitude. It, it was just making it worse. I was, I was just feeling frustrated by the fact that I was still dealing with it. And then when I made an internal shift, when I went inside and looked at, okay, my head, you know, it's hurting. I'm not going to try to push that away. I'm not going to try to imagine that oh, I can believe that my head is going to feel good all of a sudden and it's going to do that. I, I got out of that mindset and I said, look, I accept and embrace what is as it is. There's, there's intensity, there's intense sensation in my brain. Like I'm, I'm just accepting that. But where I have the power and the responsibility is how do I relate to that? 
Am I frustrated by that? And am I upset by that? Am I allowing that to be a trigger? Is my limbic system going crazy around that? Am I, why is this happening to me? And why haven't I been able to figure it out? And I did that whole thing. I was able to say, I do have, I do have the power. I do have an internal locus of control for how I relate to what is, even if I can't change it, I can change how I relate to it. And that was a breakthrough for me. What that, that, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know. I think this is really powerful. So, so now that you're, now that you're not denying this, but you're accepting it, are you now accepting that there's nothing you can do about it? Or is that where you now begin to take the steps where you can be empowered to do something about what is? Yeah. So at first it was, I'm relating to it from a different place of I'm, I'm not resisting it anymore and I'm accepting it. And then from there, a little later, I was able to then say, and I'm going to do something about it too. And I'm going to take action and I'm not going to stop until I figure this out. That, and, and that moment happened in my early 20s. So let's unpack this from the standpoint of what you and Michaela were just sharing with us a moment ago, that we are not a, a physical being, an emotional being, and a spiritual being, but it's all one, right? So now... When we're in the grief cycle, right, and we have this cycle of denial, anger, sadness, um, bargaining, and acceptance, right? What are we accepting to now get to the point where we can do something about this as opposed to one of the, one of the, one of the arguments I made last week was, was that maybe we have a grief cycle and a grief carousel. And if, if we're in the grief carousel and we're stuck in this grief carousel, then what's happening is we're constantly triggering our fight or flight. We are, we are, we are triggering um, um, the you know, Olympic system so that it is not, is, it is not function, not serving us either emotionally or physiologically. And we have to get to the point where we are accepting what is so that we're not triggered and our immune system can function. We're not in fight or flight. We're not in the sympathetic state. And then we can take the second step where we can cognitively evaluate what steps we can take to begin to overcome, to use your example, the pain in your head. Sorry, were you asking Michaela or me? No, I'm asking you. Uh, okay, <laughs> sorry. So yes, to me, that already when I did accept in the way that I'm talking about, when I, when I took control, because I had, I, what I realized is I'd put my locus of control on the migraine itself, on the disease process, like that, that was controlling me and I was resisting it. And I was feeling, I wish I didn't have it. Why me? And getting into that story. And, and it was triggering. It was triggering. And when, when I, when I took the locus of control back into my sense of the way that I relate to what is those migraines changed it from making me vomit, needing to be in a dark place, sleeping 18 hours, 16 hours to they didn't bother me almost at all. Like they were there. I could feel them. It was a, a an intense sensation. It was still a pain sensation. But when I really embraced, accepted it, it diminished about 90%. There was 10% left. It was still there. I It didn't make it go away, but it cleared all the noise around it. It cleared all the stuff around it to where now it was just a minor sensation in my head. I could actually 
just do my day. And I didn't have to even interrupt things. No one would know that it was going on at that point because I had accepted and embraced in a way that took care of a lot, but it didn't take care of all of it. And, and that was inspiring to me because once I cleared that noise and I saw the little bit that was left, I, I gained hope. I, I can do something about this. Like maybe, so now I'm not dealing with this huge complex and triggering. Now I, I've accepted and embraced it. Now it's, it's all the noise is cleared and that now I can, okay, like, what do I do about this? And I can start to take steps and I can envision and see the possibility now a little better that uh, I could, I could, I could maybe not have these, or maybe it's uh, even longer in between them, or maybe it's even less of, I, I was inspired by the dramatic drop to say, oh, so more is possible. So McKinley, now talk to us about your experience and how, how this construct that Dr. Nichols is outlining for us was something that you had gone through as well, but it was something that happened when you pivoted from the traditional system to a Lyme literate medical doctor and how the, the, the pivoting from a system that was invalidating you and not helping you to a doctor who validated you and developed um, a rapport with you allowed it to be less triggering and allowed you to now take the emotional and spiritual steps you needed to take in order to be able to move forward on your wellness journey. Yeah, so with me, I had spent so many years bouncing around from doctor to doctor who was covered by insurance. And as we spoke about earlier, these all these different specialists, they all have their own assessment of what's going on with you. And they all kind of conflict with the others. And it's just like you end up leaving your doctor's visits with more questions than answers. And it reached a point with me where I just felt like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. And I got kind of fed up with the system, not to say that it's the doctor's fault, as we discussed earlier, but it's just that it was not serving me. So I had to become my own health advocate and go seek out my own treatment and figure out what was best for me. And what Dr. Nichols described as far as working on the mind and the response to different symptoms surrounding it. It's all about the mindset shift. It's all about the response. It's not necessarily just living in this like unicorn dream world saying, oh yeah, I, I don't feel like any um, any symptoms. I feel great. It's not tricking yourself into that. It's addressing, yes, sure, maybe I have problems, maybe these are issues that I have to um, seek out treatment for, but it's all about the mindset of um, how you respond to it. So I always like to think about like the, the topic of stress is very interesting to me, like the idea of stress. Stress doesn't actually really exist. Sure, it does, but it's more so your response to stress. It's not necessarily like everyone has a different threshold. So what might be stressful to someone might not be stressful to someone else. But Michaela, isn't really your reaction what creates the stress, not what you're responding to, right? Isn't freedom, isn't our freedom between the action or the event and our reaction to that event? And if that's where our freedom is, isn't stress a byproduct 
of our of our reaction and which I think is driven by our mindset rather than rather than our reaction to the stress. Yeah, I believe it would be a byproduct. A byproduct of any our sort of reaction. Our not, reaction. And, and 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 our mindset, which of course is going to trigger this process of of what we believe is going to trigger what we think and what we think is going to trigger how we feel and how we feel is going to trigger how we how we act right so where our where our freedom lies is between that action or event and 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 our reaction and all of that's driven by what we believe right yes all right dr nichols so let's come back to your journey right so we have this journey where you're seeing many doctors over many years right you have this ivy league educated dad uh, who can't figure out what's wrong with you. And now you're seeing many, many doctors that you've gone through this, through this change in your mindset in your change in the exploration of your mind, of your spirit, of your body, but you still haven't gotten a diagnosis of Lyme disease. So talk to us about when you finally got diagnosed with Lyme disease. So in my early 20s, I had chronic fatigue that was so severe that it was getting in the way of my ability to get through school. And it came to a head when I got called into the principal's office and I had to explain to her why I was late to these morning classes. And, and she was said, you know, this is threatening your education. Are you willing to give up your education for being late to these morning classes? And I said, you don't understand. I'm so tired when I wake up in the morning that I just can't, like, I, I can set my alarm and I can set a second alarm and I can set a third alarm and I'm still dragging. I can go to sleep early. I can get eight hours. I can get 10 hours. I can get 11 hours of sleep and feel even more tired. It is so challenging for me to get going. And she said, I think something's medically wrong. And I said, I agree. But I went to the doctor and they said that everything's okay. From the blood work, maybe you're just depressed. And I said, I didn't feel depressed really i felt tired so that was strange and, and and i it didn't it felt dismissive i felt like i wasn't being heard i wasn't being recognized you were and, being said heard. That, <laughs> and 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 she said she said i think you know she reiterated i think something is medically wrong like and 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 you need to figure that out and 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 uh that's you like you're going to be a great practitioner you're going to do good work in the world but you got to figure this out in order to get there. And at that point, I was getting a little down on myself, even though I had accepted what was, even though I had gotten to that place where I felt at peace with the fact that I was fatigued and it didn't have the same emotional charge and trigger, I still was, now I was feeling, is this getting in the way of my dreams? Am I going to be able to do what I want to do? Am I going to be able to help people? Am I going to be able to get through school? Should I just go do a basic job? Should I just go resign to maybe I don't need to finish education? Maybe I just need to go get a job and, and accept and accept something less than I, my dream. And, but that felt wrong. And that felt, and in that moment, I, I said, I'm going to do what it takes. I, you're right. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to figure this out. And you made a decision. That, I made a decision. And, and from that moment forward, I knew I was going to figure it out. I didn't know how, I didn't know how long it was going to take. I didn't know what was going to be involved. And I did start to see so many different practitioners, so many different, I saw just about every different specialty from, from integrative doctors to naturopaths, to acupuncture, to chiropractic, to energy healers, to all sorts of all sorts of devices, all sorts of things. I just, I said, I need to figure it out. And unfortunately at that time, I didn't have a Lyme literate practitioner. I couldn't find one at that time. And, and so I, 
even though I went and saw all these different practitioners and a lot of it helped a little, a lot of it helped a little. And I got through school and that was, that was huge. That inspired me. I can follow my dream. And then eventually I found a, a functional medicine mentor who was, because I was going into this functional medicine world said, okay, like you, you got to test your adrenals and you got to test your stool and you got to test your, you know, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and some of the basic functional medicine stuff. And I said, I started testing that stuff, even though I didn't have digestive symptoms and I found H. pylori and I thought, whoa, why, why, why is there H. pylori here? This is bacteria in the stomach. I don't have digestive symptoms. And and I recognized that there are these functional ranges that are different than conventional lab ranges and that my thyroid function, while my doctor had said conventionally, it's okay. It was, it was above four, which for TSH for thyroid stimulating hormone, when you look at really strict research, it, anything above two or two and a half can definitely be associated with a subclinical thyroid issue, even if not a even if the lab says it's normal. And so when we're looking at optimal thyroid function, it's a narrow range. When I learned that, I realized, oh, I probably have a, a subclinical thyroid issue. And then I figured out that I had H. pylori. And that's that that began my own research. I started going into PubMed. I said, well, what, what can cause thyroid issues? And that's where I found a paper that said that H. pylori can contribute to thyroid antibodies and that thyroid issues are often an autoimmune issue. And then I started on the immune regulatory side and I, and I read that there's this obscure antibody called parietal cell antibodies or the immune system can attack cells in the stomach that produce stomach acid and intrinsic factor. And then intrinsic factor digest vitamin B12 and that's related to energy and I have chronic fatigue. And so I tested it and I found I had high parietal cell antibodies. My immune system was attacking these cells in my stomach and it was attacking intrinsic factor. And even though I was taking oral B12, I probably wasn't absorbing it very well. So I had to begin injectable B12 and that made a huge difference in my energy, but it didn't solve all my issues. So I knew I had to keep going. I knew I had to keep investigating further. So I treated H. pylori, I treated the parietal cell antibodies from what I could find in research, and I started to take supplements and do nutritional changes related to everything I could find when I was researching thyroid function. And when I got down the road of the basic functional medicine stuff, and I had done all of the, I had done, I had done all the adrenal testing, hormone testing, I had done all the gut testing, I had done the antibody testing, and I felt like I did get a chunk better, but I still wasn't there. I, then I said, well, what else is there? How, how else can I figure this out? And I had, a, I had heard about someone who was looking at these chronic infections who had talked about that sometimes when there are these gut issues and these thyroid issues that can be chronic infection, I found that paper that looked at the, the Lyme bacteria and the thyroid tissue having a similar segment of protein structure. And I thought, huh, I wonder if this could be playing a role. Okay. And, let's pause there. Let's pause yeah. there. So prior to that moment, had you ever heard of Lyme disease and was it ever something that you had considered as a possible cause for your lack of wellness? Heard of, yes. Considered a cause, no. And now, how did you hear of it? And why didn't you ever consider it a cause while you were on the journey? I had heard of it from people on the East Coast getting tick bites, <laughs> and 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 I had heard of it as more the acute infection that oh some people are getting sick after 
getting tick bites and they might get a rash and then it's treated with antibiotics. And it seemed to me at that time, my knowledge was more on the acute angle of Lyme. Okay. So, so you thought it was an acute disease. So that's the first problem that we had, right? And we always have a problem with, with Lyme disease because it is a disease without a definition. Is it acute? Is it chronic? Is it, is it polymicrobial? Is it one uh, bacteria? I mean, we just go back and forth about this all the time, right? Which is why Dr. McDonald has argued that we need to have a divorce from Lyme disease. Uh, but of course, you had never lived on the East Coast. So because you didn't live on the East Coast the way my friend Michaela did during her childhood, you didn't think that Lyme disease is a possibility for you because we were given this bad information about the geographic limitations of this disease, even though there are ticks everywhere and there are birds everywhere and it can always be transmitted in a lot of different ways, right? And what's and what's weird is it it I didn't realize this until well after I figured out Lyme and treated it. But just a couple of years ago, I was talking to my mom. I was actually doing an autobiography about my life and and looking at some of the early days for a developmental psychology program that I, I just do for passionate for fun. I like to look at developmental levels and and stages of development. And and I was as I was retracing my own development, I was talking to my mom about my childhood and I was asking about the dogs. We had these dogs growing up and and she said, you know, we 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 had to we had to wait after we had these two dogs, we had to wait for a while because the vet told us that that the tick problem in the dog yard um, wasn't going to resolve until we didn't have a dog there for a couple of years. So that's why we had this break between having dogs. We loved having dogs, but we had to have this break because of this tick problem. It, it just was, oh, <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't realize that. I didn't, I, I hadn't known that because it was Tucson, Arizona is really dry and really hot. And like, no one talks about ticks there. And, and, and I had never thought about it, but then I, just found out a couple of years ago that there was an issue in the dog yard where I spent a lot of time as well. So, Michaela, what's your reaction to this as a former East Coaster who didn't get diagnosed with Lyme disease until she moved to the West Coast? Um, and I, I'm going to ask you to react to this in two ways. First, uh, how do you react to this belief that is sort of permeated, uh, you know, the medical community that you know that Lyme disease is an East Coast disease? And secondly, how do you feel about us? limiting the um, the vectors to ticks when we know that Lyme disease can be passed on congenitally from mother to child. We, we know there's a fair amount of research that's showing that Lyme disease can be passed on sexually from one partner to another. And we certainly know that people could get Lyme disease from from um, blood transfusions, right? So even if we were just limiting this disease to some geographic area, would we believe that people aren't going to have intercourse with people from that area? Are we going to believe that people are not going to, um, you know, get pregnant, you know, when they've been in that area? And are we going to believe that people are not going to get blood from that part of the world? Sure. Ticks are most prevalent on the East Coast. Mosquitoes too, which also carry Lyme disease, but it's also... That, Very, that we, we, we could debate about whether or not that's a vector, but they certainly they certainly have found that 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 mosquitoes carry the bacteria. I'm not sure they can be a vector. And that's that's a conversation we should probably have. So just to think of it as an East Coast disease would be very narrow minded because people travel. And of course, like people uh, like 
to have it spread congenitally, um, sexually, people are not just going to be segmented to one specific geographic location. So it's just a, a very narrow-minded way of looking at it. And so polite. Um, you're, you're so polite. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous <laughs> that we would then we would say a disease is segregated to a certain part yeah. of the world or some other country. It's ridiculous. But unfortunately, a lot of doctors still feel that way. Like one doctor that I saw last year, just a PCP, um, just from insurance purposes, I needed to see her. I just mentioned that I had Lyme disease, which probably wasn't the best move on my end because that kind of opened up a can of worms that I didn't want to talk to her about discussing. But she just told me, she just flat out said, how in the world did you get Lyme disease in California? And uh, like, I was just floored. Well, I said, well, first of all, I'm not even originally from California. I'm from the East Coast. And second of all, even if I was from California originally, you don't think that there's not one tick that exists in California. Or so that you maybe traveled to New York at some point. Exactly. You you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's just absurd. But, you know, look, and, and that goes back to the flaw that we've already discussed, which is having this speed dating relationship with our doctors. They don't have enough time to get enough information from us to determine, even if that were the case, whether or not we had contact with the endemic area, even though we know, you know, Lyme disease is spread throughout the entire world. And, you know, that's a, that's again, why yeah. that's happening is, is another conversation. So Dr. Nichols, let's again, so you, you we, we, I, I had you pause for a second now on on your Lyme disease diagnosis and what you knew about Lyme. And you, you know, you, you shared with us that you had dogs and there were ticks and there were all these kinds of things that you didn't know about, but now you finally get to the clue that allows you to take the step to a diagnosis. So finish building that up for us. Well, and, and a quick aside first of the doctor in California saying that, oh, you, you're in California, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation. This is just the issue that I pointed to back with the doctor that, you know, my mom is working with, who's a really amazing doctor, but who can't keep up on the literature. The Bay Area Lyme Foundation has come out and shown that in California on the beaches, the brush by the beaches, oh, yeah. There's a tremendous amount of Lyme. And so it's it Lyme carrying ticks are in California. And there's all the other issues that you brought up as to how it can spread. And the worldwide issue is significant. There's a paper that came out that showed 14.5% of the world population seropositive, meaning blood test positive for Lyme. And that doesn't even account for the more strict interpretation of those blood tests. It doesn't account for other species of Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria that causes Lyme. There are more species than just the one that's typically tested for, and it doesn't account for co-infection. So if 14.5% of the world population is seropositive for Lyme based on extremely limited and, and very overly strict criteria, you got to wonder how much it's actually playing a role in the world today. So back to me and my story. The, so, so as I, I, I realized this, I, I started to look at and investigate the specialty labs for Lyme and, and what, what testing was available. And, and so I wound up finding that there are some labs that are well-versed in multiple species and co-infections. And, and again, it took a lot of research and finding some Lyme literate practitioners and doing some of my own study because I was in the functional medicine world. I, I, I was able to, to, to shadow and to study and to, to learn more 
about it and how to interpret it with a broader criteria. And that's when I was able to order, I ordered through two different of the specialty labs, uh, Lyme testing and Lyme plus co-infections testing. And that's when I discovered that I had antibodies against not only Lyme, but also Babesia and Bartonella. Okay. So you did, you did two antibody tests. No, 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 no direct um, testing. Yes, I did PCR tests. So I did okay. PCR testing as well, which didn't show positive, but PCR testing rarely shows positive for, for most people. In my experience at this point, I see very, very low PCR tests, except for in the urine with the DNA connections lab, they have pretty good uh, PCR tests that, that are sensitive enough. But when we look at blood PCR, very rarely do we see blood PCR because these infections tend to get out of the bloodstream or, or get into joints and tissues and the nervous system and the spine and the brain and places that you're just not going to see the PCR of the organism in the blood. So the urinary PCR, yes, but the blood PCR, no, it doesn't show very often. So how old were you when you finally got to a place where you're able to locate a Lyme disease diagnosis. Yeah, so by the, this time I was mid twenties and I finally figured that out. And I was, I, I managed to be decent enough with my symptom picture from all the stuff I had done to be able to make my way through school, but I was still sleeping a lot. I was still tired more than I, really wanted to be, I still was having migraine headaches. So all of it was better, but definitely nowhere close to resolved. And it was still definitely getting in the way of my day to day. So when I did discover that diagnosis, it was a relief. It really felt like, okay, I'm onto something here. Now I have something to work with. And okay. So you now, you now go through the euphoria of finally getting a diagnosis in your mid twenties, and you believe that you're going to take a couple of pills and get better or what? Yeah, I mean, I knew enough to know that at that point, chronic Lyme is not easy to treat. So, and unfortunately, I was really under the impression that it, it, it never can go away and just have to kind of manage it. And so I was, I was, I, 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 I knew, okay, this is, I, maybe I'll feel a lot better. And I knew I'm going to figure this out. I had that that resolve inside of me that I'm going to figure this out. Because and you had made a decision, right? I mean, Dr. Yeah, you made exactly. a decision you were going to figure it out even before you had your diagnosis. Exactly. So getting a diagnosis and getting getting information from the research you were doing that suggested that you were not going to be able to overcome this, that you were only going to be able to manage this, is something you decided you weren't going to accept either. You were moving forward yeah. with finding a solution to this. And how did you do that? Yeah, so as I began to... I mean, obviously I was personally motivated and, and as soon as I opened this can of worms, of course, all, uh, it, it just all pervasive information all around me. Um, as I, as I started to treat and work with this in myself and, and then patients started come, coming in, finding out, it just became this snowball effect very quickly. Okay, and I, I really, I think this is really important, right? Because we talked earlier about the reticular activation system and how, once we change our decisions, and I believe beliefs are decisions, but let's use the less triggering word decision. You made the decision that you were going to solve this issue. You made the decision that you were going to solve the Lyme disease issue, despite there being some contrary evidence that you'd be able to do that. And now 
your reticular activation system is now bringing you all kinds of information about Lyme disease and the universe is bringing you people with Lyme disease. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that when you make a decision and you change your beliefs, how two things happen, you begin to get more and more information about how you're going to solve the problem and you have more people coming to you. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I started doing is diving into research because I didn't have, I, 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 first I tried the basic things that I saw out there. I, I found about Buner herbs that I found about the Coden protocol. And I just, I, okay, Cowden and, and Buner, and I'm going to do all this stuff and, and cling heart. And, you know, I just found the people who were successfully treating it and just started trying stuff. And while I was doing that, I was also realizing that I, I, I have an interesting and maybe unique skill set in, in research because I had done enough research at that point, especially into herbs. So I began looking at, I thought, well, how did Buner come up with this? And I started looking directly at the research and I started looking at the herbs that are, because there wasn't, there was limited information directly researching Lyme. I looked at, well, Lyme is a spirochete. What other spirochetal infections are researched? I looked at, I found leptospirosis had quite a bit of research. And I started researching things like leptospirosis, the limited information that was available about Lyme and looked at, uh, mechanisms of action and how Lyme tends to the different forms of Lyme and how those forms have virulence and protective factors. I started to investigate biofilm and round body form and persister cells. And I started to understand the, the both herbals and, and drugs that may be helpful in treating those things. And I, 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 I dove deep in, and that's kind of what I do a lot when I get obsessed with the topic is, is I, zone most other things out and I just dive deep in. I have to, I have to consume as much information as possible and I have to investigate deeply the research. And then, and then I, I came up with these formulations, these customable formulations. I found a company that would put together the exact ratios that I wanted. And, and, and I began to um, take those and use those in the clinic. All right, Michaela. So let's talk about the brain and how um, Dr. Nichols's brain was not serving him in the same way your brain wasn't serving you. You were the sickly kids and you just kept, kept getting more and more evidence that you were sick and you were sickly. And then he made the decision that he was not going to allow this lack of wellness or this illness to control him and control his life. And now his brain started to serve him. And the first thing that happened when his brain started to serve him is if it brought him to a place where he could get a diagnosis. Then his brain started to bring him tools and teams to build around this wellness plan and look at all the things that had happened. Now talk about how that worked in your journey as well and how powerful the human mind is when we understand what we can control and how it works for us by bringing all of this to us now that we didn't have available to us when we were, when we had not made that decision, we did not have those beliefs. When we reframe and control our narrative, we become um, more of more proactive in finding solutions. We become more rational. And oftentimes when we are putting out those types of vibrational frequencies kind of speaking to the law of attraction, 
then that's when all of a sudden, all of these solutions, all these answers, not, not that there's like this end all be all solution that all of a sudden just like lands on our doorstep one day. No, but, but it's different for every one of us, right? I mean, look, we're bioindividuals and we have a different combination of, of, um, of bacteria and viruses and, um, and protozoa spit into us. We all have, we're all living in different environments and we may have a different, uh, we may have a, a different level of, of metals and a very, very different exposure to mold. And we have all these other things that are very individualized to us. We all have our own, our own, um, our own genetic code. I mean, we're all very individual on every single different level, but our brain brings what we need to us, right? So it's not, it's, a, it's more than just being rational. It's more than being, more than being, being um, more than being, uh, I don't remember what word you use, more than, more than being just, just focused, there's more coming to us. Our brain is bringing more to us that are, that's specific to us. Or am I wrong? Oh, exactly. No, right on the mark. We are attracting what we need because we're all energetic beings and we're putting out the positive energy. So therefore we are gaining exactly what we need. All right, Dr. Nichols, do you agree or disagree with the little conversation, the little side conversation Michaela and I were having? Absolutely. I mean, you just, it's classic if you get a, if you think about a new car and you 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 start to think about which one you're thinking about, all of a sudden you see them everywhere when <laughs> you, you didn't hardly see them before. I think there's a phenomena that many people experience in, in, in many different ways. Once, once a decision is made and once you're really considering something more fully, awareness filters itself and starts to, to, to hone in on that. And, and it can work negatively too. <laughs> Sometimes it can hone in on all the reasons why you're not going to get better and why. And, and that's what yeah. happened to you before you were 15, right? Dr. Yeah. Before yeah, you yeah, had exactly. your, your epiphany, that enlightenment moment when, you, when your dad passed away, which you shared with us so beautifully, you had more and more information confirming that you were sickly and sick. And then you had the, the, you had the epiphany and now you started to get more and more information about how you would get well, right? That yeah, was a line yeah. for you. And you were very, very young, which is really powerful. Um, you know, it didn't happen to me until I was in my late fifties. So it's really, you know, it's really a very different, very different construct. Uh, but that's what was happening with you, right? As Michaela was just described, right? So let's talk about this energetic piece, because I think that is not described well enough. And you two are really knocking it out of the park on that, right? The one symptom that we see with everyone we interview is fatigue. Yeah. Lyme disease is the great imitator. It has 4,000 different, you know, um, uh, and, and I, I know I'm being dramatic. It has many, many different symptoms, right? But what we see on this podcast is everyone tells us they felt fatigue and they get mad if we compare it to the tiredness that, you know, that the muggles feel. It's really, really powerful, right? And you both did a great job of describing that. And if you look at LymeDisease.org and their surveys, the number one symptom that everyone has is fatigue. Why? Yeah, that's really a great question. And one that I, because I had chronic fatigue, I looked at a bunch of different causes for fatigue and I was looking at thyroid and I was looking at the parietal cell antibodies. I was looking at that iron deficiency anemia. And I was looking at all these different angles that we, that I could find in research are contributing to 
fatigue. And there is, as you mentioned before, and we were talking to this immune dysregulation component related to chronic Lyme, we do see this immune dysregulation involved in this autoimmunity, the autoimmunity involved in thyroid function, involved in the ability to metabolize B12, involved in many of these processes that end up being the causes of fatigue can be impacted by this immune dysregulation that can also be related to Lyme disease. And so I there's this I think uh, while there are many causes of fatigue, and of course, if someone is just strictly completely not getting any iron in their diet, there are a few things like, okay, like it, it doesn't have anything to do with Lyme, but th there's, there's definitely a lot of these diagnoses that, that can connect with and feed on or be fed by Lyme and immune dysregulation that all would contribute to fatigue as being one of the central symptom expressions. Because Michaela was arguing that we're energetic beings, right? And we agreed with that, right? We, we Michaela was arguing that what's happening is that we're, we're, we're having an energetic, we have the, the, the capacity to communicate and connect energetically, right? But where does our energy come from? It comes from our cells, right? Our energy is cellular, right? It is, it is our mitochondria that is ultimately ultimately charging our cells and and that's where our energy is coming from right so and, and and i want you to disagree with me if i if i'm wrong about that so one of the things that we have to focus on of course is why we are having the challenges cellularly and you know what, what what's triggering you know me to bring this conversation to the two of you now is um is that you know dr rolls's most recent book um is about cellular wellness, right? Solution, right? And he's essentially arguing that we have to be healthy on a cellular level. And when we are healthy on a cellular level, physiologically, that has an impact on us emotionally, that has an impact on us spiritually, and it has an impact on what we're bringing energetically to us and what we're portraying energetically. So I, I, Dr. Nichols, I like your reaction to that first, but I, but I also would like uh, Michaela to weigh on that and on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, mitochondria produce ATP. ATP is cellular energy. That energy is at the crux of many of the body's function and abilities. And, and really, it's the reason we're alive as complex beings and multicellular organisms is because of the mitochondrial synergy that occurred a long time ago that allowed for this complexity to arise in terms of organisms. There are fascinating books that talk about the history of the biologic evolutionary biology and, and it hinges largely on mitochondria. And then now we're dealing with so much mitochondrial dysfunction and cellular dysfunction and energetic imbalance and it again boils back to a mind-body corollary. There are there there are there are psychological and emotional leaks that occur when the limbic system is dysregulated. When you're in a bad way, when you have the subtle trauma of chronic illness. For for me, it was I almost lost my dreams, and that that's huge. That's the big suck to my energy, and 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 it ties into. The cellular energy, it ties into mitochondrial function, the migraine headaches that I have, there's good research showing mitochondrial issues associated with that. We see mitochondrial treatment being an incredible part of most Lyme treatment as well. And so the energetics of the psychologic dimension and the physiologic mitochondrial function dimensions both play big roles. And I see that 
that that I released a lot of emotional energy when I came to these distinct moments when I made that decision and when I accepted and started to relate differently to the disease process and the physical and physiologic symptoms that place relating differently freed up a tremendous amount of energy, not enough to get me over chronic fatigue yet at that point of my life, but it was an immense amount that I think that, that I held in my own internal complex around had the trauma, the historic trauma of being different, of feeling passively resigned for time, and then of feeling like, okay, now I accept and embrace, but I still don't know what to do. And then finally getting a diagnosis and being inspired to feel like there's something I can do, but there's still a lot of energy wrapped up in this diagnosis. And, 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 and there's a temptation to identify with the diagnosis and give it power. And now we're dealing with energy loss psychologically, as well as mitochondrial dysfunction physiologically, as well as immune dysregulation. And it's a big picture that's interconnected, I think. And it isn't interconnected on so many different levels, but you know, coming back to what sort of led us into this, Michaela, is, is it, as energetic beings, if our energy is being zapped physiologically, if our energy is being zapped emotionally, then how are we interacting energetically with the world and is that limiting our ability to have the tools and the and the teams of people that we need to come to us so that we can get to a point where we can start moving forward on this illness wellness spectrum moving towards uh wellness yeah you took the words like that i was just gonna say about our energy being zapped it's exhausting having chronic illnesses especially with dr nichols and me having chronic illness most of our lives, if not even my theory is maybe I perhaps got it congenitally. And just for instance, going to school, me trying to keep up with my peers, I was trying to like, I was probably putting 200% of my effort into what other of like my peers had to not even use 100% of their effort to do to try just to function normally. And that in itself is exhausting. It just takes more effort. And right, so, so you, you're using more effort to keep up, keep up with your peers. You find that you're different. So that has an impact on you emotionally, right? So now we're going to talk about different types of dysregulation. Perhaps it pulls you into a sympathetic state. So you, you, you have to learn how to self-soothe. If we can't do that, so it's just, it's, it's energy loss, energy loss, energy loss. I mean, you're losing it, you're losing it physiologically. You're, you're using it neurologically. You're, you're, you're losing it uh, emotionally. It's just a drain. Exactly. And anyone would be exhausted with that kind of energy expenditure. It's like having your feet tied together and then just like someone tells you, go run a marathon. Like it's, it's not impossible. It's very difficult. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to be very draining, but um, that's what it's like. So Dr. Nichols, talk about how this impacted your career, right? I mean, you, you wanted to always be um, in, the, in the helping professions. You had this powerful role model in your dad who, who, who was a wonderful healer, both, uh, both on, a, on, a, uh, on a one-on-one level. And then, of course, he was scaling that when he moved into, into public service. Uh, and then you were able to overcome your challenges. And you had some doubts about whether or not this was a path you were going to be able to pursue. You thought maybe you'd get a 
regular job. You'd be a mugger like me and Michaela, but you were able to leave. You were able to leave that mindset. You you ultimately did move into the medical community and talk about how all of that was driven by this journey that you were on to overcome Lyme disease. Yeah, I really decided also not just that I wanted to get well myself and figure that out, but when my father passed, I decided that I needed to, for my, I mean, it started more for my own family someday, but then it became much more about for other people's family, not to be dealing with tragedy like that and to, and, and to feel, I felt into how much potential my father had to help so many people. Cause he really had the, he had spent a, an immense amount of time to get to where he got in his career. And he was at a point where the, the scale and the impact was so big. And another, another 10 years at that point could have, could have helped millions of people. And and that that still hurts to me today. It hurts in my heart to feel that if I knew then what I know now that I could have, I think, I believe, helped him to live another 10 years. And, and, and I feel that I need to not pass on before I can have the level of impact I want in the world. And I need to help other people who are feeling their passion and purpose in the world because at first I, I I really, I actually thought, oh, I want to help people live their purpose in the world. I want to help them to get clear on that and live that. And, and pretty quickly, what I realized is that how are people supposed to do that? How was I supposed to do that when I was chronically fatigued? I, I nearly, I nearly lost my dream. And how are other people supposed to do that when they're struggling with chronic illness? And I realized that that's a big block. It's a huge obstacle to people giving back to the world, to offering what they feel in their heart is their service and offering to the world, they're struggling to get through their day, let alone to do something bigger in the world. And that is, it, it saddens me. And it saddens me that the number one reason why people with Lyme pass on is, is suicide, that the quality of life can become so difficult. It can feel so difficult to function and to, to be asked to take care of the obligations, which are quite complex in today's world. People are busy. People are, there's a lot expected of people. And I really feel for the mother who comes in, who says, I'm struggling to get through my own day and I'm expected to, to raise these children and to be a good spouse and to be a pillar of the community and to do all this stuff. And I can't even feel okay with getting through a day. And this, to me, this is unacceptable and I don't think it's necessary. And, and that hurts because when I want that, like I, I need to, I feel like my part of my purpose now is to help to educate and train practitioners and, and work with some people directly in order to be able to feel again, like the energy is sufficient that, that we have released enough of that energy to, it doesn't need to be perfect, but we released enough of that energy to, I can live my dream. I can follow my purpose. I can do cool, good, interesting work in the world. And I can enjoy my life. I can be there for family, for friends, and I can contribute to something bigger. And I want people to be able to contribute to something bigger. And this really holds people back from that. So I really feel strongly that a big part of where this, where these, these moments, these pivotal moments to me came in is I need to be able to 
help others, serve others to be able to live their purpose, but I can't do that without helping them through chronic illness. All right. So give us a little bit more of the specific details about how you and your wife have now opened up, um, you know, a, a, we talked about this as we began the conversation, how, how all of this now has manifested in these dual businesses and, 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 and just share with us before Michaela asks you the final question, how folks can work with you or some of the practitioners that you've trained. Yeah. So Dr. Diane and I founded the, the Medicine with Heart Clinic because of, in part, our own personal journeys and because of this passion and this purpose that I'm speaking to, and then seeing the limitations one-on-one -on -one care in terms of a bigger impact inspired us to also found the Medicine with Heart Institute. And that institute trains doctors and practitioners and coaches and people who want to learn and understand more about how to test for and, and treat complex chronic illness from a mind-body-based functional medicine approach. And, 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 and then I also have a background in, 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 we have a mindset coach in our clinic. We make sure that we're integrating the limbic retraining, brain retraining. We're integrating vagus nerve uh, practices. We're integrating the things that people can do at home, not just the treatments, because there are so many people who do take supplements and do dietary change and work on exercise and sleep, but still are struggling with these issues. And as Michaela mentioned, the, to get the full benefit, we do need to address those levels. And I found that a lot of other functional medicine practices were missing that. So that's a part of the Institute too, is helping to make sure that other practitioners understand the ins and outs and intricacies of the limbic dysfunction, the vagus nerve and the practices and protocols that can help to improve and, and, and desensitize some of that limbic activation and to teach people and train people to regulate the nervous system on the fly. And to me, the hallmark sign of that is that, that a person at default in health, I believe, should feel an emanation of love from their heart. And a lot of people, like I didn't talk about normalization in this culture. Like I didn't I didn't, not only did I not think that that was uh, uh, health <laughs> or possible for a lot of my life, I didn't, I didn't realize that that's even possible, except for like the people who practice 30 years of yoga or meditation, maybe they'll get there someday. I, but, and I've realized actually that's the default, like that, that's, that's the natural state. And so the clinic, the Medicine with Heart Clinic, the Medicine with Heart Institute, and some of the other projects, like I, I have developed an herbal line as well, this herbal line to, to help people with Lyme from the, my unique perspective on, on, on having treated it um, and other chronic infections as well, are all contributions that I've made and, and what I'm doing these days. So before Michaela asks the last question, just give uh, our folks um, some information about where they can find you online. What's where, where is your, you know, where can they find you either online or on social? What, what, what where would they find you? Yeah. Best place is medicinewithheart.com because we post free blogs. There lots of informational content that we really spend a lot of time and energy working on. And that's freely available. Medicinewithheart.com also has an ability to book a call with one of the staff in the clinic to talk about what care looks like in the clinic and in, and we can 
talk about care in the clinic and or for other practitioners we've trained. So if you want to call the clinic, book a call on medicinewithheart.com. Those are the best places. It's There's social, there's a, a book you can get. There's uh, there's lots of other ways, but the best central hub is medicinewithheart.com for the clinic. And for practitioners learning, wanting to learn more about how to have training in this, it's mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com. All right, Michaela, you're up with the final question of episode 333 of the Thick Bootcamp podcast. 333. Okay. Yay. So you and I have very similar backstories growing up, feeling chronically ill, feeling a little off, just knowing that there's something that's not quite right with us, but not knowing exactly what it is, downloading that as our narrative. Okay, this is just like the way life is for me. So with all that, and that has definitely shaped our personalities, if you could go back, would you choose to have your chronic illness or would you choose to be quote unquote normal? Because like children growing up, everyone just wants to be normal. Do you view it more as a gift or would you want the opportunity to experience life as someone who, who identified more with the mainstream? I absolutely consider it a gift wholeheartedly because the challenge, the struggle, I, I mean, at this point in my life, I really believe that for myself and many others struggle helps define us and define me. And a lot of my passion, my purpose centers around my struggle. And, and I, I, I appreciate diversity. I appreciate a lot of the colors of life. I think I have more empathy. I think I have more ability to uh, understand consciousness, understand myself, understand human suffering and, and more ability to help. And to me, the most important thing is to be able to give back, to be able to serve and support others. Like I've come to a place in my life where, where I'm quite content with, and I found this sense of being like feeling whole, feeling content, feeling like I have what I need for myself. I'm good. And now really my main focus is how can I serve and support society and others and help with this chronic disease epidemic and help with, with high-performing people like my father to optimize their function and to, to, to live longer lives and serve more. And I don't, I mean, I have no idea where I'd be without having struggled in the way that I did, but I'm so glad that I did because I feel that a huge part of my offering to the world is due to my having struggled and moved through those things. Michaela, who I can't thank you enough for sharing this, uh, this co-hosting responsibility with me and Dr. Uh, Miles Nichols, you were an unbelievably awesome guy. This was an unbelievably powerful podcast. And I can't thank you enough for taking time away from your really busy life and practice to share your journey with the folks here at Tech Bootcamp. I really appreciate you and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm so honored to be co-hosting. This was a great episode. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Miles Nichols. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, follow Dr. Nichols on Medicine with Heart, his website, www.medicinewithheart.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, 
Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by our past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a moment to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.